from deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. to go. Brian Cox also in the backfield in a fullback spot. Now there's a handoff to Thompson trying to run off the left. Now cuts it back up and in for the touchdown. What a beautiful run that time. Mark Thompson scores and the Gators lead six to nothing. That was a running game on that series. The snap to Barker. Barker steps back and looks to throw. Still with the ball and fires down the left sideline. It'll be intercepted. How by Quincy Wilson with a great interception at the 45-yard line. Coming back and brought down to the 48-yard line. Here's Del Rio on a play action. Dropping back, looking to throw. Rainbow's one down the field for Callaway. He makes the catch, and there he goes. Away, Callaway. Touchdown, touchdown, touchdown. He just went 78 yards for a Gator touchdown. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. The Gators improved to 2-0 on the season last weekend after a dominant 45-7 thrashing of Kentucky, running their winning streak over the Wildcats to an astounding 30 straight victories in the series that now stands as the fifth longest in the history of college football. Along the way, they helped answer some lingering questions from the opener and have laid the foundation for another big performance this weekend against North Texas. To set the stage for Week 3, Today, we'll introduce you to Florida's bruising new running back, Mark Thompson, hear from offensive line coach Mike Summers, and assess the early state of the orange and blue with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. But first, Florida's sizable stable of running backs makes it possibly the deepest unit on the team, and a couple of new faces have already made big impacts on the field. One of those is Juco transfer Mark Thompson, and as we learned during our extensive conversation, he's making the most of a very unexpected opportunity. Going back to high school, I wasn't that heavily recruited as I was coming out of junior college, so in turn I ended up going to a junior college in New York called Nassau Community College in Long Island, New York. Um, My head coach at the time, Curtis Curtis Gilliam, um, was relieved of his duties, and a new coach took over. And me and that new coach really didn't see eye to eye. And Coach G is what you know what I called him. We um that was who recruited me. That was my guy. So when he left, you know, I decided you know maybe the school wasn't the right school for me at that point anymore. So I left. And that spring and summer, I was looking for other junior colleges to go to. And Coach Twiner, Gunner Twiner in Dodge City, Kansas, um, extended an offer out to me and said, you know, we really like you to come out here and showcase what you can do. Okay, bang, I go out there that summer, and um, that first year we had a tough season as a, as a team, a whole team, but um, uh, I didn't have the greatest season. I had some issues fumbling the ball that year, and I also, you know, like I said, I was splitting carries. So, so I ended that season with, I think, like eight touchdowns maybe and 460 yards on the ground. Since then, he graduated and moved on, and I became a sophomore at Dodge City. And the coaches preached to me, okay, uh, we need you to stay because I had the option to leave that spring, and I could have went to schools outside of the ACC and SEC because the SEC and ACC have a rule that you have to be somewhere for three semesters before you can leave. Mm -hmm. So that's when I committed to Florida in that May of 2015. 
and decided to stay another semester. And when I did that season, when we came back, we had a really good season. I had a really good year behind everyone that played with me that freshman year. We were a very young team, and we all had that year of experience on the offensive side of the ball, so we were all clicking on all cylinders. And we had a very good season, finished, I want to say, ninth, somewhere between ninth and 15th in the nation wow. in junior college, coming from being unranked the year before. And it was it was cool. It was fun. I had a lot of fun with those guys. I missed them. I still talk to a lot of them mm-hmm. every day. I have friends that go to Tennessee, friends that go to Arkansas State, TCU, uh, Central Michigan. They're, they're, they're all over the place. And, you know, I'm happy I got to make those connections with those guys because we were all making trying to get one goal. And a lot of people say in junior college, the goal is to get out, so everyone's looking out for themselves. But we were close in that group. We were actually a lot closer than that, and we were looking out for each other instead of just looking out for the individual. You've talked about Dodge City as being a place kind of in the middle of nowhere, and, and I had never heard of it until I researched it to talk to you. How did you end up at Dodge City? Had you ever heard of it, or was it just something random that, that came up? It was, it was very, very, very random. I remember coming out of high school, I was looking for junior colleges to go to, and every time I saw a Kansas or Mississippi junior college, I said, no way, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going there. And that's what made me go to New York. But when it was time to branch out and go again, in a sense, I was, I was kind of you know running out of options. There wasn't really many places for me left to go because just like in, in Division One, once you're in a conference and you try to leave, you can't really go to another school in that mm-hmm. conference. You know, They make it really difficult. So I had to go to a different conference. California, the cost of living is a lot, and I spoke to some coaches out there, but it just didn't seem like that was something realistic for me to do, coming from the East Coast. That's mm-hmm. all the way across the country. So Kansas wasn't as far, and it was right dead center in the middle. So I said, you know what? I don't know anything about Kansas. I don't know what's out in Kansas. Probably not, not a lot. So I might as well go out there and stay focused and do what I have to do. And that's what I did. And I made a lot of new experience out there. It was a culture shock for sure. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was. I learned a lot, and I definitely matured as a man being out there. And staying focused, you know, is important for you because you didn't do great academically in high school, and that right. was part of the learning experience. So can you talk about that growth and that progression for you and, and how you came to understand how important those other factors were. In ninth and 10th grade of my high school years, back in when I went to Sheltenham, I didn't do any homework at all. I didn't do any schoolwork, didn't study, nothing. I was an immature child and just having fun and just playing football as something that's fun and not looking at the long run like, okay, I'm kind of good at this. I should probably do what I have to do off the field in order to play on the field and be eligible because I didn't know anything about a grade point average of GPA until I was a junior in high school. And by then, my GPA At that point, it's too late. Yeah, very, very late. So that's when I did start to actually turn around. Um, I was I didn't get in trouble as much. I was more in tune with my classrooms. But like you said, it was too late at that point. But at least it showed me that, okay, I can change and I can make the steps I need to make. And junior college was kind of like that opportunity for me to show that I could do that. So how did you first get on Florida's radar? Because you mentioned committing to Florida early on, and that Mm -hmm. was before your breakout years. So what did Florida see in you before anybody else did? I didn't, like I said, I I didn't have a lot of opportunities on the field going to Dodge that first year because there was already someone who was there before me, and they knew the offense, and they trusted him. So they let me take carries with him. But like I said, he was more of the starter. But out of the opportunities that I did have, I tried to make the most out of it. And from my freshman highlights, you can see, that every time I did get to touch the ball, I tried to make something big happen. And I think that's a Florida Saul and Coach Mack liking the bigger running back, and I think he saw some things in me that he's probably seen in the past from people who he has recruited or tried to recruit. And I believe that's what stuck out to them is that, okay, he's big, 
but he can move and he's not just, you know, out of position, playing a position that he shouldn't be playing. And on top of that, when they were at Colorado State, I did have communication with them because I was reaching out to schools that freshman mm-hmm. year right after the season, so November, around November, December. And I did have communication with them, but then, like, after a week, they just stopped talking to me. I didn't know what happened, but at the same time, I couldn't just dwell on the one school I had to see, you know, who who was liking my style of play. Sure. And when they got to Florida, I got a message from them um, through t- via Twitter, and that's when everyone told me, like, yeah, you know, they just came from Colorado State, and then a light bulb went off my head, like, oh, snaps. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's probably the same staff I was speaking right. with. And it's just crazy how things worked out because I thought Colorado State just dropped me. Little did I know they were mo- leaving and just moving staff to another university. So when all of that happened and, and you're committed to Florida and then all this action comes in, how did you handle that? How did you respond to all of these big schools that were suddenly calling your name when before your phone wasn't ringing and now you're a really hot commodity? Well, it was really that spring after that first season where I started getting offers. My first offer was actually Arizona State. And uh, a lot of people don't know, I committed to Arizona State for probably a few days. But mm-hmm. um, surprising as this may sound, the coach kind of talked me out of committing there. Really? Yeah. He he said, Mark, are you sure this is a this is a big decision? I don't want you to make this and regret it and things like that. Where other coaches, if I would have said I committed, that would have been in the discussion. <laughs> and Just stop talking before you don't, – yeah. don't talk yourself out of the deal. Yeah, right? exactly, exactly. <laughs> so when he said that to me, it gave me a chance to step back. And I also had um, Louisville coach in my air. Iowa, Iowa State, the new staff at Colorado State, which came from Georgia, there's plenty of schools, Texas A&M at a point, Georgia, UCLA, so the list goes on and on. But Coach Mack and Coach Skip, I could tell they were genuine in things they were saying. And, you know, everyone says, oh, recruiting is just recruiting. When you get there, things change. And things haven't changed. You know, the same amount of respect that they showed me over the phone is the same amount of respect that I'm getting now. So talk about the experience of coming to Florida. When you first came on your visit mm-hmm. and you go from Dodge City Community College to one of the biggest universities, biggest campuses in the country, what was that like for you? Coming on my visit, well, I picked the right game to come to. I came to Florida State uh, around last Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. and It was nothing like I ever experienced. That was actually my first, I want to say, real college game experience. And it was coming here to the school that I'm at now. And it was crazy. I The money down thing and getting loud on third downs and being loud, period. Mm-hmm. I actually got butterflies coming out to watch the Gators play and that I'm not getting now. It was, I think, because it was all so new to me. And mm-hmm. it was just an amazing sight to see. I never saw anything like it. I'm used to high school stands, junior college stands, which is less than high school most of the time. So to come out and see over 500 people in the stands, it was outrageous. The level of play is obviously very different, and I know you're only two games in at this point, but what have you experienced so far that has shown you this is a much different game than what you were playing before? Well, not to doubt any of my opponents, and like you said, I only played two games, but in those two games, I really in my heart of heart feel and believe that practice was harder than those two games and that it's definitely more challenging. I don't know why that is. It could be because of the level of play of our defense. It could be of you know, the defense and the offense, you know, we know each other. It's practice. You know, they know what's coming more than half the time. Mm-hmm. But in the game, it's definitely challenging, but it's nothing like, oh, man, this is nothing like junior college. I haven't touched the ball that much to, you know, really make that comparison yet. And like you said, we're only two games in. I have about 21 carries in those two games where as opposed to 265 last season. So I really feel once I'm getting more comfortable and acclimated with the offense in a game time situation that the difference will be very minimal. 
Now, you're a big guy, and you've always been a big guy. I was reading about your past. You started playing <laughs> as a kid. What was it like when you went and signed up to play football, and, and you're just huge compared to the other kids around you? Well, I only think I was huge when I was eight years old, and I had to play like three weight classes above what I, <laughs> I should have been in. But I think I just had kind of a little, a little bit of a belly, you know. <laughs> but, it uh, happens. Yeah. <laughs> but it, I didn't really notice that those kids were older than me when I was younger. I didn't even notice until they gave me the nickname Young Buck, and that was because I was so much younger than everyone else. And I went up against probably who was the star of the team at the time in a head-on-head tackling drill, and he, he gave it to me. But I got back up, and, you know, I liked it. I didn't cry. I didn't say, Dad, I don't want to play football anymore. It just it made me just want to go harder. I wanted to be the guy who was running people over and things like that. When you're a big guy, mm-hmm. they often want to put you at different spots, and they want to make right. you a defensive end. They want you to be a rusher. Mm-hmm. How many different positions have you played over the course of your career? Over the course of my career, I've played, I played kicker. You were a kicker? Yes, sir. Really? In high school, yeah. I, that was when I first played varsity my sophomore year. I was the kicker. Whose idea was it to take you with your size and your frame and, and have you kicking? Uh, we always do, like, special teams before practices, and the quarterbacks <laughs> toss around the ball when I was in high school. And I was kicking one day, and I was kicking better than everyone else. And the kids on the soccer team didn't really want to play football. They, so, they didn't, they didn't want to get hit. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so I ended up being the kicker, and my friend was against Upper Dublin, I think, third game of the season. And that year they went to the playoffs, actually, so I was a part of that, kind of. So – I kicked the ball off, and, you know, ever since then, I was, like, my first varsity appearance. But I played kicker, uh, linebacker. I played DN my senior year for the first game of the season until I had to take on pulling guards, and it was okay. That's not for me. <laughs> I'll give, just give me the ball. <laughs> yeah, the ball. I played uh, safety, corner that same year. I played quarterback my freshman year of high school. Wow. Uh, I started out as a quarterback, honestly, but my cadence, my voice wasn't as deep enough as it had to be. So they were like, okay, you can't play quarterback. Uh, and then receiver and running back since I've, you know, been a senior in high school and ever since then. I want to go back to the kicking for a second because this yeah. is fascinating. What was the longest field goal that you made? Did you kick any field no, goals? No, our high school coach like, didn't believe in field he didn't goals. He was like the guy that goes for two every time? Yeah. Get, okay. mm-hmm. Do you know what your range is? Have you, have you tried – have you competed against Eddie at all out there in the <laughs> oh, indoor no, practice? Oh, no, that's, uh, that's long gone. That's over, that's <laughs> over with. You mentioned earlier that you've had some issues with fumbling over the years. Mm-hmm. And I know you've tried some unique things to correct that. Just mm-hmm. talk about the process you've gone through on and off the field to keep the fumbling from happening? Well, this wow, this roots back to my freshman year of junior college. Um, I was terrible ball handling. Like, I would put it over defenders' helmets if they tried to go low. Like, high and tight was just not a thing that went through my head at all. And that first season, I, I had such a big fumbling issue that when the schools weren't calling me during the season, because I really didn't know about dead periods and things like that, mm-hmm. I'm thinking, okay, it's probably because I'm fumbling the ball and my coaches will get on me so much and say, you know, no school's going to want you if you keep putting the ball on the ground. You know, they can find a running back that can do this and that and can hold the ball. So after that, working on ball handling, I've been working on ball handling since then. And it was good. I fumbled probably twice that sophomore season. Coming off of a season where I fumbled the ball like six times, six, eight times the previous season. And then I come here in the spring – and they're going after the ball like nothing I've ever seen before. Like, they're notorious for that. Marcus May, obviously, I think, had the most forced fumbles in college football all last mm-hmm. season. And the defense is just so fast and just so physical that when you get tired, that's when they're going to go after it even more. And I remember it was the first practice in spring. Uh, I think Marcel Harris jarred the ball loose from me. And then after that, they were like, 
bloodthirsty. They just every single time where I got the ball, they were just trying to rip at it and take it out. But that's made me better in fall camp. I'd have been put the ball on the ground at all, but maybe one time. I can definitely see the difference in how I hold the ball, how tight I'm holding it, two hands when I'm in traffic, which is something I never did before. And Coach Skip, Coach Nuss, Coach Mack have been working on it hard with me, and it's it's paying off. So I'm, I'm somewhat disappointed you don't have a ball with you right now. I, I, I read that you were carrying footballs everywhere. everywhere. So I'm, I'm curious, what were the strangest places that you were walking around carrying a football? Well, it was the summertime, so I didn't really have to worry about people on campus <laughs> being around seeing, like, why is this kid holding a football? Yeah. Right, so it was real easy just to hold the ball while I'm on my scooter, one hand. That's not probably safe. I don't recommend that to anybody. <laughs> Are you, like, walking to class carrying a football? Yeah, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, wow. Walk to class, and I would obviously put it down when I'm in class, but, you know, anytime, because I read Adrian Pearson, that's what he did after his rookie season in the NFL. They made him carry a ball everywhere, so I figured, okay, if that's what he did, he's best running back in the NFL maybe I should do that it'll help me out too you're part of a, a big stable of running backs there's five of you guys that are getting carries at this point yes sir I'm curious how do you keep the competition healthy among the five of you I mean you just have to be a team player because the goal in the end at the end of the season is to win a national championship you aren't going to win a national championship by being mad that you're not getting carries pouting because the game isn't going the way you're going or just being upset and just ill-hearted in general if someone else if Jordan Scarlett has three touchdowns in a game where I only have 10 yards I'm going to be happy because we're probably going to win that game because of the effort he's putting out there and I see him putting that effort out in practice so it would be different if someone was just you know being lazy in practice and just moping around and then come game day and they're getting the ball I think that's how a lot of people become jealous and become mad. Okay, like he doesn't deserve that. But we all work so hard in practice, so you can't be mad if someone else is getting the ball because, I mean, he's out there doing taking the same reps I'm taking at practice every day and sweating the same sweat and breathing hard after each play because he's giving it everything he has. So you can't be mad when someone does something that you want to do because they're putting in the work just like you are, just like how I know I was the first running back to score a touchdown this past game. None of them were mad about that. I came to the sideline, they're all shaking my hand and being happy. And when LaMichael scored and Scarlett scored, it was the same case. You know, we're all teammates, and the competition will always be healthy. So now that you're here in Gainesville and you're not in Dodge City, I'm I'm assuming there's more things to do. So Mm. when you're not carrying a football around (laughs) or other things related to football, what are you doing in your free time to, to enjoy yourself? Well, I really just play Xbox all the time when I'm home. I have to go to tutoring. A lot of the times after um, football practice, mm-hmm. so I don't really have that much downtime in a sense because I just I left the house probably eight o'clock this morning, had class, doing the interview with you now, and then after this I'm probably gonna go eat for a little and then it's practice time, and then after practice time I say it's tutoring and then I go home probably three four hours, uh, hang out with my dog and that's about it and wake up and repeat. What are the Xbox games of choice? You're going up against <laughs> teammates. What are you doing there? Uh, man. 2K, Gears of War, and Destiny. Destiny's a really good game. I don't think a lot of people give it the Never credit. heard of Destiny. Yeah, it's a really good game. It's kind of like Halo. Okay. Yeah, yes sir, yes sir. Best teammate to mm. compete against in Madden. Who gives you the, the biggest run for you? <laughs> uh, Caleb Brantley. Caleb Brantley, okay. Yes sir, yes sir. He's probably beaten me the past, wow, four or five times we played. And I just don't know why because I like demolish everyone else. Like Dale McMillan. I don't think he ever wants to play me in Madden again. <laughs> Every time we play, <laughs> I scared beat him. him up. <laughs> but um, yeah, Caleb Caleb is good at Madden. He's good at 2K too, and that's one of probably one of my closest friends on the team too. Final question for you: You get to be back in the swamp this weekend, and last week you scored the first touchdown of the game. Mm-hmm. You got ninety thousand people there. You're coming from playing at Dodge City Community College. Just yeah. 
take me through that experience of getting in the end zone and just realizing how far you've come. Well, wow, getting in the end zone, I'm usually a, a hype up guy. Obviously, that's not, you know, what's accepted here. In Dodge City, I would get in the end zone, and there's not many people, so I'd, I won't say act a fool, but, you know, I, I'd do my thing <laughs> no when I score. see it, do what you want. Yeah, yeah. you know, I score a touchdown here, and I look up. I'm used to looking up and seeing the sky. <laughs> I look up here, I see a bunch of screaming fans and orange and blue everywhere, and it's it's just different. And there's, like, a picture going around everywhere of me smiling when I scored the touchdown, and I was just happy. That's all I really could. That's all I really wanted to do. Building depth on the offensive line is one of the most difficult tasks for a coaching staff to tackle, and it's not something that can be fixed overnight. The Gators have been slowly building up their talent and numbers up front the last few years, and the steady hand of Mike Summers has led that charge as the longest-tenured coach on the Gators' staff. Jeff Cardozo caught up with the O-line coach to find out what led to such a big jump from Week 1 to Week 2. Yeah, Jeff, I'm really excited about their progress. Um, you know, certainly as you start every season, uh, that offensive line group pulling together and coming together is, is a big issue. It's a big part of building a football team, and it's not something that happens uh, right off the bat. It, it's something that grows and, and develops each week of the season. And certainly week one is always difficult because it's, it's new and, and uh, game speed and, and a, lot of thing, a lot of variables that come into that. Um, but I thought our guys really went back to work last week at practice and, and dedicated themselves and, and really worked hard to try and improve what we had done on the first week. And, and I thought it showed in a lot of our production. You know, the, the line of scrimmage was, was something that we were really concerned about. How can we take control of that? And, and I thought from, from a run game standpoint, they did a really good job. And then certainly pass protection, I think, uh, for the most part, after the first series, we were, we were pretty solid. And I think that was evident, too, from game one to game two. On the fourth down, you guys didn't convert against UMass. A lot of the short yardage third down plays were very successful against Kentucky. I think that's where a lot of it shows up. You know, we get to third and short, and and certainly winning on first down has a lot to do with that to get us into those third and short situations. Uh, You know, we ended up with an amazing stat from Saturday's game where we were uh, 14 of 20 on third down, and I think four or five of those were third and shorts that we were able to convert. And not all of them were blocked cleanly. Uh, some of them were not as clean as others, and, and our backs did a really good job of breaking tackles and, and falling forward and converting on third and short, which, which is always something that's critical for us to keep drives alive. And, and uh, So I was really pleased with that part of it, pleased that the guys just had the, the focus and the energy to be able to come off the ball down after down. And I think early in the game established a tone um, that eventually wore the wore Kentucky down and gave us an opportunity to take control of the game. And before we talk more about your guys, it's it's evident too that the run game needs to get going to help out the pass. I mean, look at Luke's numbers from last week, the 320 yards and all the touchdown passes. But if it wasn't for establishing that run game, he probably doesn't get that right. Well, I think you know the key to football is controlling the line of scrimmage and being able to make defenses have to do something to stop you from running the, running the ball. And if you're able to have success running the ball, then they have to take a secondary guy and add him to the box to shore up that part of their game, that part of their defense. And certainly when they do that, that leaves us with opportunities to throw the ball down the field. There will be games where we run it better than others. And and depending on how much the defense wants to add to the box to try and stop 
the run game, but certainly if we have a dominant run game, it's going to open up things down the field, and it's also going to give us a time or, or an opportunity to cr control the ball and control time of possession, which was something that happened in this game, I think. Our defense played 22 snaps in the first half, and, and we'd played 49. And so when, you're, when you've got that kind of imbalance where we've got control of the football, then we certainly have got control of the game too because our defense stays fresh, and, and all that plays into the hands of being able to run the ball. You knew after the, the way the season ended last year you'd have some young guys coming back. So as you go through the summer and trying to establish some more depth and, and develop some guys, what was that process like getting, getting through the fall and getting ready for the season? Well, that's exactly right. We, you know, Even though we've got a few guys coming back that have played, um, they all are still very young and, and haven't got the number of starts and the number of – of experience that that a lot of teams do around the country what that does to us is in preparation they, they have to see and have to be exposed to a lot of things that that they're seeing for the first time and um, and so repetition creates confidence it creates the opportunity to say this is how we handle these situations and every game that we play and every play that we play uh, adds to that experience, adds to that confidence. When we come into the season, there's a little bit of uneasiness from those guys. You know, what, what's it going to be like? What are we going to see? How's, it, how's the speed of the game? And I think each week as we go through the season, we'll see that start to um, turn into confidence, turn into um, more production, turn into guys that uh, have, have experience now and do understand what's going on. Coach Mack likes to say after the first game that there are no more rookies, mm -hmm. that everybody's a veteran now because you've been out there and certainly haven't gone through the routine. Our progress from week one to week two showed up, and, and I was really happy to see that. And I talked to Cam Dillard after the game against Kentucky, and he said the same thing. He really touched upon how, how hard you worked them going into that Kentucky week. So you saw some things on film, I'm sure, after, after game one. What were some of those things that were improved for game two? Just an overall understanding of, of where our targets were. There was a lot of movement that happened in the in the first game and and the targets changed and so it was important for those guys to understand when they changed how we were going to re-mic defenses and be able to put our combinations on the right linebackers I think there was a lot of work done there and then I think more than anything just just a, a refocused effort of being able to come off the ball and, and get vertical push in the run game um, those guys accepted that challenge um, in the past game, you know, Luke, Luke needs time and, and our receivers need time. And if we give them opportunities to throw the ball, we're going to be really successful. And so I, w I was so pleased that um, as we went through that game, we basically had, had taken a lot of the fight out of the Kentucky team because they could not get to Luke and, and he was able to dictate what was going on in the secondary. So, um, you know, it was, a, it was a great game from that standpoint to be able to point out those improvements to be able to say, hey, this was week one. Look where you are when – look what our offense does when you do it the right way and when we have everybody on the right people. Um, there'll be games that won't be as productive as that, but we're continuing to aspire to get that done. As you, you look at some of those guys from, from week one to week two, I'm sure there's a little more pep in your step, and I know you guys had, had really emphasized to, to play a little bit faster and do some things the right way. So were you satisfied with that? I really was, and, and, and it's easy to have pep in your step when things go right. <laughs> and, and the challenge is when things don't go right, can you rely on the fact that you've got confidence in what you do, confidence in your offense, and that we're going to get this thing turned around and put it back where it needs to be? And that kind of falls under that experience category of guys that have confidence that know that 
hey, things didn't go right this series. Let's go back and get it fixed and get it straightened out. Um, I think sometimes younger players start staring at the scoreboard and staring at me and, and wondering what's going to happen next. And, and the more confident you are, the more you realize that's just a part of the game and, and it doesn't affect you emotionally as much as it does when you're a younger player with less experience. As we've learned over the years, college football is truly a week-to-week sport, and one performance isn't necessarily indicative of what's to come. To that effect, the Gators looked like a much different team against Kentucky than they did against UMass. To assess how Florida improved so much from Week 1 to Week 2, we enlisted Scott Carter and Chris Harry to share their takes on the Gators' biggest gains. Well, I think, Adam, from week one to week two, what we saw was a, a much better Gators football team, and that was in all areas. I thought the offensive line significantly improved. The running game significantly improved, and Luke Del Rio looked more comfortable and looked uh, more efficient, although he still missed a few throws, as we learned from Jim McElwain. Uh, overall, the defense, uh, I thought you know they forced four turnovers. The Gators scored 28 points off turnovers. Uh, so they got a complete game. There was some... Penalties that they still uh, had too many of, according to McElwain. They also, you know, didn't do anything special on the special teams. Eddie Pinero missed a couple of kicks. So I guess if there's one area that dipped, it was on special teams. But mostly the energy was was there, and it was just a performance that a lot of people had expected against UMass. They had to wait an extra week against Kentucky in the SEC opener. Uh, but they did take that leap that you always hear about from week one to week two. That's where a team can sometimes improve the most, and I think Florida did show that. I think that, uh, Adam, my first year covering the Gators was 1990, and you know maybe I was a little spoiled or what have you, but for the 10 years I covered the team, uh, it was it was wildly entertaining. And, you know, there's been some entertainment factors missing from Florida Field the last few years, uh, especially when it comes to offensive fireworks. And that game was entertaining to me the other day. The week before against UMass was not entertaining, with the possible exception of Steve Sperry doing Mr. Two Bits. You know, fans want to come and they, they, and they, they want to see stuff. Jim McElwain was, quote, uh, uh, hired to fix the offense. You know, yeah. when we look back at it and um, you saw uh, uh, the, the, the play-action fake, the 78-yard touchdown to Antonio Callaway that we haven't seen here in a while. They tried it the week before, and the pass was a little bit off, and it was an incomplete pass on the first play of the game, which I thought was kind of cool that they did that. But like Scott says, between the, the passing game, you saw a defense that forced turnovers. There were splash plays. Quincy Wilson's interception was spectacular. I thought Jalen Tabers was every bit of spectacular, not as acrobatic, but just in terms of football IQ and acumen, I thought it was fantastic. Um, again, your takeaway from it is when Kentucky comes, you expect to beat Kentucky, and in some cases you expect to smash Kentucky. So the game was 45 nothing late in the game. It ends up being 45-7. to Gators did what they were supposed to do this week. Didn't really look like they were supposed to the week before. So like Scott said, week one to week two, much more improved. You feel better after a game like you know Kentucky, but it's it's early in the season. You want to see, keep seeing people improve like Coach McElwain said this week. We talked so much during the offseason and leading up to week one about the offensive line. That's been such a big topic of discussion. And, Scott, it really seemed like they made strides from week one to week two more so than possibly any other unit. I agree. I think it was as much as energy as anything else. Uh, you know, after the first game against UMass, that's one of the first things that uh, Jim McElwain touched on was he, he thought those guys were a little sluggish up there, the way they were – Going up to the huddle, he wanted to see him run more. And then, of course, uh, you got a situation against Kentucky 
Uh, Fred Johnson, starting right tackle, had been battling an ankle injury. He goes out there and starts, but then, you know, he realizes, hey, this hurts more than maybe I expected. He wasn't uh, at his full strength. So they bring in freshman Jawan Taylor, uh, and I thought he did a really nice job, just added a, a little spark there. But really from uh, all, all five guys up front, it didn't matter who was in there. I think you did see a uh, just more energy. And you know how the game works, Adam. You start having some success on offense like they did early, and that gives everybody a little extra juice. And I think uh, you saw that not only up front, but the running game. You know, offensive linemen love to get the running game going, and they got that going early on that first score and drive. Uh, what, 84 yards, 15 plays, four running backs getting touches, and finally punching in there with Mark Thompson. Uh, touchdown run. I mean, that that had to give those guys an extra boost, and, and they didn't let up. But certainly, I think Mike Summers was pretty happy about the way they came back in week two. And even, even Mike Summers tweeted about them yesterday, so you know <laughs> they did well. <laughs> well, I mean, the the back to the ground game, I don't think they've decided on who a running back is. I think Mark Thompson came in, stood at the podium to his credit, talked to this running by committee, and we like that, okay? Um, you don't know if that's how it's going to play out again, second game in. You know, maybe one of these guys is going to start inching ahead of the race. And Michael Pirine uh, looks like a nice little back, mm-hmm. and, and that's not a guy we were talking about. I mean, I wrote a story in the preseason about the about the, the, the four-horse race running back. His, his name wasn't in the story. Uh, yeah, he was, a, he was a fifth horse in the race, right. So, so, you know, they have options back there, and, some of the, and those guys, you know, do stuff differently, uh, whether it's Thompson being, the, like, the, the power back. I really liked how he planted that left foot and pile-drive that pile into the end zone for that touchdown, which we didn't see the week before in a fourth and two when mm-hmm. McElwain went for it down close to the UMass goal line. Not that there was a hole there, but – Again, making some holes in the offensive line, getting some rhythm uh, for, for running backs. Um, and, yes, like Scott says, the uh, offensive line, linemen love to run block. It's easier than pass blocking. And when you can get some rhythm in your running game, it certainly helps you. And then, it, you know, you, you can keep defenses off balance. You have so many more options when you, when you can get four and five yards in a running game. And that's what the Gators did. And, I, you know, either whichever of those Jordans they go with, Scarlett Cronkite, they look like good players. Mark Hearn a little banged up, is he? Was Mark Hearn a little banged yeah, up? Yeah, he or? was a little banged up. Uh, didn't get a lot of action. Yeah, two carries, I think. And yeah. he's going to be limited this week, according to McElwain. So we're still kind of mm-hmm. waiting to see how. How he fits in there, if at all. Yes, but again, but it, here's a guy who's one of those four running backs, and you know that's what that's where Piran steps in a little bit. So we'll see how that all shakes out. But you know, options there, some more things you saw with uh, some receivers. Uh, again, Tyree Cleveland has a we haven't we haven't seen him yet. He's got a hamstring. We don't think we're gonna really gonna see anything from him probably this week. But finding out things about the offense, and I, I think we're finding out that Luke Del Rio knows what he's doing back there. Uh, not an elite athlete, I don't think, by any stretch of imagination, but I think he's really, really smart. And he's really, really studious when it comes to uh, watching tape and what have you. And I think his teammates really like him a lot and, and have faith in him. And that, that goes a long way at that position. And frankly, there hasn't been a lot of that here around here for quite some time, not since that guy with number, number 15. And not Pinheiro. Different <laughs> yeah, 15. Yeah, different, like, like the last 15. The last 15. Last 15, 15 of note, correct. Important, important yes. to, to put that yes, on there. Yes. Uh, let's talk about the defense a little bit because they also played phenomenally last week and led seemingly by Alex Anzalone. And this is a guy who we've heard about for years, one of those players who just couldn't stay healthy. And I think we saw maybe to the biggest extent what he's capable of doing leading that linebacker core when he is able to stay on the field. 
No, I agree. He was a guy that Jared Davis reminded people the other day when he was talking about Alex Anzalone. He says, remember, before at the start of last season, those first two games before Anzalone got hurt, he was ahead of Davis. And then, of course, Davis comes in, has a great season, and really has looked at one of the best players on the team, rightfully so. But Alex Anzalone, boy, that one drive when a Kentucky – it was three and out, and I think he was in on every play. First shot of the game. Yeah, had a yep. sack. I mean, right away, mm-hmm. he just set the tone. And, I mean, he's better than I expected. I mean, from what I've seen after two weeks, I didn't know he was that strong and that gifted to where he can kind of <laughs> take over a drive like that. You know, so you add him and Davis in there, that's a pretty good tandem. He has a chance to uh, be something of a, I don't know if Cole figure might be a stretch, but with that – with that Thor look about him, you know, we'll start calling him <laughs> the hammer or what we're going to do. But I think I think he, he kind of gets into the attention a little bit when you talk to him about it. He doesn't mind talking about that kind of stuff. But a heck of a player and, you know, fending off blocks. And, you know, again, we'll see as the as the competition gets a little bit better where where this guy is. But that's probably a position where the Gators are probably lack a little bit of depth at that linebacker spot. But as long as those two guys are, are healthy, they're going to make some plays there. So – Putting that performance in context, this is the challenge early on in the season. You have a not-so-great performance against UMass. You have a great performance against Kentucky. Where do we assess where this team is at this stage? Or is it, as McElwain said, still kind of an up-and-down thing where you don't necessarily know until, where they're going to fall? Until you're not up-and-down, it is an up-and-down thing. That only makes sense. And, you know, I, I've always been one to think a little bit like, you can be a really good team. You're not going to get up for every game. You're just, you're just not. And coaches don't want to hear that, but there's some reality. I think after playing far below the standards they would have had set for themselves against UMass, they were jacked up to, to have a little bit of a better performance uh, against Kentucky. I don't, think that's, I don't think that's how good this team is. I think there's a lot of talent on this team. I, I was at a lot of preseason practices. I thought this defense was really special. I really did. And, uh, you know, they, they, they had a couple gaffes uh, in the first week. And, you know, something we haven't mentioned here, Jalen Tabor wasn't on the field that first week. And, you know, I think uh, UMass only had 187 yards, I believe, in that game, uh, yep. you know, minus you know, you know minus Jalen Tabor. But he was back and, and really makes a difference in that secondary. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's going to make those linebackers look good. He's going to make the defensive line look good. And, uh, we again, we haven't mentioned the defensive line. And Chris Rumpf is rolling like, you know, eight, nine, ten guys in and out of there. And any one of those guys could probably be considered a starter. So, you know, you – you have a snapshot, Adam, through two games, you know, against UMass and against Kentucky. It's so much more football left to play. The bar is nowhere where they want it to be. He just wants to keep seeing progress, and progress this week would be a significant lopsided win over North Texas, as, as is going to be expected from this team. And, no, I mean, you're right. I think everything he says right. But one thing they could do better, Chris, is – they they allowed three completions to Kentucky last week and intercepted three. <laughs> they should at least have more interceptions. <laughs> yeah, okay. But yeah. not seriously. I mean, that was as good of a defensive performance against an SEC team as as we've seen in a while. Uh, and you know, Kentucky's not exactly probably Alabama. Or, yeah, but they threw for what three hundred some yards the week before. Yeah, I mean, Southern Miss, which you know, mm-hmm. you know, Southern Miss. I know they're Southern Miss, but Southern Miss is yeah, yeah. yeah. And Chris Southern Rump, Miss capable of beating people. And Chris Rump, the defensive line coach, last week. I mean, he was genuine when he was talking about Drew Barker. They saw a lot of things on film that he did against Southern Miss that concerned them. But I mean, they just totally took him out of any rhythm or chance to make plays. And the that, and as soon as they benched him, they put the other guy in. He sack fumble. So I mean, yeah. the, the other guy they, was on the run right away. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, North Texas is a game that sure you know Florida's going to be heavily favored. 
you would like to think that Florida would just walk out there on the field and pick right up where they left off against Kentucky. We all know that's not how it happens. That's not the way it works. But it is, a, I think, an important test for them just from the terms of if they're going to get over that M.O. that McElwain talks about. He, when he said he got here, he kind of looked at the history of the program in recent years, and there was a lot of that great game, lackluster performance, good performance, bad. I mean, they're trying to get over that hurdle. and you're We gonna... had it last year. Yeah, he did. I mean, it, <laughs> yeah, it carried he over did. into yeah. last year. Yeah. Last year, you had Georgia and a great performance against Georgia. Then came a miracle field goal, if you will, from Austin <laughs> Harden to beat Vanderbilt and to win the and to win the East. Right. And then there was is Florida Atlantic either before or after South, Carolina. South Carolina. Yes, exactly. So the, Florida, Florida Atlantic was an overtime game. So um, that's exactly what Scott's talking about is that up and down nature. And he he does want to eliminate because the truly elite programs don't do that. So getting back to North Texas, and, and we've talked about the expectations. People know what the expectations are. They're similar to what you had going into UMass. Tell us more about North Texas and why those expectations are, in fact, realistic. Well, you know, you, they came into the season facing UMass, uh, the Gators. The UMass was considered by a lot of the power index polls number 128 in FBS. Now you got a North Texas team coming in here. They finished 1-11 last year. Uh, got a new head coach in Sean Luttrell, who was the offensive coordinator the past couple of years under Larry Fedora up at North Carolina. He's taken over a program that lost 66-7 to last year to FCS school Portland State. Worst loss ever for an FBS program against wow. an FCS. So this is a program that's rebuilding. And, you know, on paper, it's kind of this similar matchup against UMass. I mean, the Gators are going to be favored by probably 30 points or more. Now, one thing, you know, North Texas has a couple of games under the belt. They opened up with a loss to SMU, but they bounced back at home last week and beat Bethune-Cookman. But this is going to be by far their biggest test of the season. They're going to be coming here, hey, we got nothing to lose like UMass did. So it's going to be interesting to see. Portland how- State probably said that when they went into North Texas. <laughs> yes, well, it worked out pretty well for them. Now, uh, I don't think Neil Lomax was playing for Portland State for that game, was he? <laughs> no, no, I think he was just watching on the <laughs> Clint TV. Didier, greatest Portland Portland State players ever, well, as I digress. Excuse me. Well, that's pretty impressive. Yes. He even knows that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, that. I didn't know they had a football team anymore. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, so anyway, uh, just going back to this matchup, uh, I mean, uh, it all goes back to uh, going out there and doing what you're supposed to do against these kind of opponents because no doubt Florida has a superior edge in talent. They're coming off a really big win, got some momentum early season, and we can't look past the fact that if they do win this game, Tennessee waits there. We've been and that's, talking. that's the one everybody's been talking yeah. about forever. Plus, yeah. and, there, and there's some danger in the fact that the, there's guys thinking about Tennessee game right now. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that, that game's only you know, a, a week and a couple of days away. So, well, and, and, and in theory, yeah. if we're talking realistically about the way that players' minds work, there's some players who've been thinking about Tennessee since July. Oh, when I'm, you looked at the first three weeks of the season, given UMass, North Texas, and Flores dominance over Kentucky, there's a lot of people who've been thinking about Tennessee since January or February. Right. Yeah, ever since really – early summer when Jalen Tabor kind of tweeted about Fan the, the flames. Yes. yes. And basically that thing blew up and it was a story all summer really over just a tweet about a guy saying, Hey, we beat him 11 in a row. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We think we're going to win 12. So, you know, Tennessee fans are going to be riled up. Uh, 
they had a big win against uh, Virginia Tech. They got a, another matchup this weekend. So, you know, if it's going to be two 3 and 0 teams in Nayland Stadium next week, that should be a very fun atmosphere. Hey, we're talking, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Well, I know. Yeah, we're but, looking ahead. But we're allowed to do that occasionally. We're allowed <laughs> doing, to do that. You're doing the same thing we're accusing <laughs> the players of doing. <laughs> well, that's the way it works when you have a microphone. You know? I understand. <laughs> yes. Before we go for today, I do want to touch on this past weekend. And obviously, week one, really, really cool with the Spurrier stuff. Really was. Mr. Two Bits, the field dedication. That almost became a bigger story than the game itself. This past week, the 04s come back, the reunion of the 06 07 back to back championship team. I know you got to be a part of the festivities. Just what, what, what did you take away from that? What was unique about that? Well, I was able to attend. They had a reception for the, for the team. The guys that were able to make it back by Friday, they had something Friday night. Corey Brewer got in late that night. Uh, Joe Kimanoa got in early uh, Saturday morning, so they weren't there. But it was funny. I was at the. At this reception, Jeremy Fuller got up and, and made a little bit of a chat, and uh, then he kind of g- gave the floor to Billy D. He was talking a little bit, and all of a sudden he hears people, ah! and then Al Horford comes walking in behind Billy D because <laughs> he was late. And so, with oh, a, with a glow yeah, and, yeah, exactly, yeah, yes. exactly. And with his wife, uh, you know, the former Miss Universe, mm-hmm. it was really, really cool. And uh, the fact that those guys made the time to come because they're uh, the, the marquee guys uh, are going to NBA training camp in, a, in you know, I think in ten days. Uh, Billy was telling me, I think they start September 24th, I think is the Thunder's first, uh, first training camp. So, you know, it's been 10 years. Uh, I was asked, I was on the, the, the pregame show on, on Saturday before the Kentucky game and Brady Ackerman asked me if I thought that the that team's underappreciated. I don't think they're underappreciated in any way by the Florida fan base, but in the big picture, I mean, it's the only team in NCAA history to return an entire starting five from a national champion. And obviously they won that second national championship. And the fact that they were, they came back and took on all that pressure. All in these 04s you mentioned, they were, they were the best of friends, lived together for, for you know three years, saw each other every day, ate together, played together, partied together, what have you. Um, like Billy told me, he goes, they played for the right reasons. They played for each other. They loved Florida. Mm-hmm. And they came back to win a second championship with each other and for Florida. And, you know, I don't know that we're ever going to see – someone will repeat as champion one day, Adam, obviously. But no one's ever going to repeat as champion again with the same start five because you're talking about three lottery picks coming back. Not going to happen. You know, I don't, I don't know if one ever is ever going to come back when you think about it. But they had, they had three of them come back and went – remember, in o, the 06 team, unranked to start the season, wins the national championship. 07 team, number one in the country – all that pressure, wins a national championship. Same team, two totally different circumstances. And it was good to see those people back. And they certainly, uh, I think the people just appreciate what those guys did in that ride that they took the, the fans on and during those two marches. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're enjoying Gator Tales, please make sure to subscribe through iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher and leave us a review so we can continue to grow and reach every corner of the Gator Nation. You can catch the Gators back in the swamp on Saturday night against North Texas at 7.30 live on ESPNU and the Gator IMG Sports Network. And we'll be back with an all-new episode next Thursday. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in the swamp.